This is Brian Dascom, your host for the City Voice podcast. We have a very special episode, and I find myself saying that a lot lately, that we have a special episode, but it's certainly the case here. I'm looking forward to the discussion of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, with uh, Lakewood Police Chief Mike Zara. And we've also got Brian Bishop here. He's the program manager for ADBC's Workers' Comp Retro Program. So uh, uh, welcome to you both, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we'll start with you, Chief Zaro. Um, can you tell us uh, a little bit about Lakewood PD? How many how many officers do you have here? Uh, we have ninety nine commissioned uh, officers. That's okay. from me on down. And how long have you been an officer at Lakewood? Well, a little history about the police department is uh, the city incorporated in nineteen ninety six and contracted with the sheriff's department for police services until two thousand four, when the city started up their own department. Uh, and I actually came from the sheriff's department in 2004 to, as a detective to help start the department. Uh, in 2007, um, or excuse me, 2008, I was promoted to assistant chief, and then uh, in 2015 to uh, chief. Well, I'd, I'd like to start our discussion of, uh, of PTSD, but before I do that, it's worth saying that uh, none of us around the table here are clinicians, and this shouldn't be construed as anything like medical advice or um, diagnostic advice rather it's just a discussion around PTSD and how it affects cities and I think one of the one of the first questions perhaps to ask and to answer is to say uh, that PTSD for a lot of people has its first um, its first associations with those who are in the military there um, uh, those who are in the armed forces but it's uh, it's certainly something that affects cities uh, Chief Sar, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Lakewood's history and uh, the, the history of the police department and how PTSD became a point of discussion for you. Sure. Well, first, uh, as you mentioned, it's, uh, you know, heavily emphasized or it's um, uh, recognized as associated with the military. And we are a military community. You know, we are at the, the gates of uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. So just by virtue of that, we're aware. Of it. uh, and it's something that we, we have at least heard of and, and talked about and dealt with. Um, it became a little more personal, uh, not a little more, a lot more personal in uh, 2009 when we lost four officers in a single incident. Um, it was a shooting where four officers were killed on November 29th, 2009. Uh, and it was in the aftermath of that that uh, we really um, had the need to be able to recognize PTSD and understand what it was and what it wasn't. Uh, and in particular, we had one officer that um, was actually working that morning that uh, was diagnosed with PTSD and had to be off for a considerable amount of time and get treatment and ended up coming back to work. But just through that, uh, we were educated more on PTSD and certainly affected personally by it. Okay. Well, well thank you. And I know this is uh, an issue that you've, you've spoken on at uh, various events. So I, I wonder if you can tell me, just speaking in generalities, of course, uh, every individual is different, but uh, what is generally the culture of law enforcement and how does it treat an issue like PTSD? What is kind of the common reaction to the topic? Well, not just PTSD, but any, um, and I hate to use this word, but really it's, it's, it's kind of the most appropriate word is weakness. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, we are a group of type A people. uh, And uh, I know, you know, going back from to when I started in the early to mid nineties in law enforcement, uh, if you, you know, had something or dealt something, uh, excuse me, if you dealt with something that you struggled with, uh, you just 
you know, rub some dirt on it and moved on. Right. You know, you, there wasn't any talking about how it affected you or um, asking anybody for help. It's just, you know, that's part of the job, kid, and you, you suck it up and move on. Um, we're at a point now, finally, you know, and this is 26 years later, where um, we are starting to emphasize wellness, uh, not just physical wellness, but uh, mental health and psychological wellness in our officers. And part of that is being able to um, get help and talk about um, these different, very uh, traumatic and sometimes tragic uh, incidents that impact us negatively. So if you have someone who's perhaps experiencing PTSD or some other, uh, some other thing, some other issue that they're concerned is going to come across as a weakness, um, and they don't say anything about it for that reason, what are the ramifications to that? What, what are the problems that arise if someone wants to hide anything that they're worried will be perceived as weakness? Well, the, it's not the fact that they're hiding something necessarily. It's that they're not getting treatment for, for something that could alter their behavior or lead to negative consequences. Uh, when we talk about PTSD, you know, some of the, uh, the symptoms of that might be, you know, um, inattention, uh, you know, loss of sleep, you know, changes in appetite, things that can certainly affect your decision-making uh, while you're at work, which can then lead to, you know, potentially bad decisions and, and discipline on the other end. Um, so it's not that, uh, you know, hiding it could lead to, in and of itself, can lead to, to something bad, but it's more about not getting treatment for what you need treatment for. Gotcha. There's a missed opportunity there to get treatment that's helpful. Absolutely. And from what I've read um, about this issue, it's often the case that, um, that people are seeking some kind of treatment, but they'll, they'll self-medicate, right? There's, there's ways that we all would deal with some kind of difficulty. And uh, I've heard that alcohol is a common way uh, that people will self-medicate for PTSD. Is this... Um, is that true to the to what you've seen? That's really hard to say because, you know, we haven't dealt with a lot of people who have truly um, been diagnosed with PTSD, at least on our department. Um, we've dealt with a couple, and that wasn't necessarily uh, cases where they self-medicated with alcohol or anything else. Um, but I can tell you that when, whether it's PTSD or anxiety and depression or something like that, people just want to feel different. They want to feel better than how they feel. And sometimes that is uh, by way of self-medicating with alcohol or pills or, or some other way. Okay. Um, now, this is a, a sensitive question. And so if, if you're listening to the podcast, I would encourage you to uh, just use your own discretion about if it's an answer that you want to hear. But um, you mentioned the, the shooting of the officers. Um, what other kind of issues are police officers facing uh, if not on a daily basis, at least perhaps on a yearly basis, what kind of situations are they walking into that could trigger PTSD? Well, let me preface this again. You you pointed out uh, as we started that none of us are doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I don't say this as somebody who's had formal training, but we did have somebody, a doctor from uh, JBLM, come in and talk to us about what some of the triggers are for PTSD. And one of those uh, is... Um, exposure to life-threatening incidents. Uh, and certainly the, the situations that our officers face um, a lot of times can be life-threatening, whether it's uh, a, th a threat to their own life, a uh, threat to the life of somebody else where they had the, an inability or felt an inability to intervene um, or this lack of control 
something something like that can lead to post-traumatic stress, and if that's prolonged, then it becomes a disorder. Um, Sorry, I, I'm going uh, to ask a follow-up yeah. there. You say if it's prolonged, it can become a disorder. So does that right. mean that if there are recurring incidents, or if the incident itself takes a long time, or if just their uh, reaction to it is, is ongoing? My understanding is it's more about the reaction. Um, okay. Post-traumatic stress is one thing. Uh, it's, you know, you, you can experience some of these same symptoms, but if it, it's prolonged for months, then it can become a disorder. And that's, that's the difference. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, that's why it's not, um, you know, you can't look for PTSD in somebody in a day or two and say, okay, you've got PTSD. Um, we need to get you treatment or, you know, you're fine, uh, in a day or two and say, you know, okay, move on. You know, we don't need to worry about him. Uh, PTSD for it to, or post-traumatic stress for it to become a disorder has to be prolonged for months. So it's, it's important to look for those symptoms, you know, after an incident for several months and educate the officers or anybody on what to look for in themselves. Okay. That's helpful. I mean, it's, it's helpful for one thing to point out the distinction between post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. which would be a normal reaction to a stressful situation right. uh, versus it becoming disordered and that there's something. So when you talk about that uh, amount of time that has to pass before you could even diagnose someone with PTSD, um, are they, and is there, is there sort of nothing that can be done in that interim time or are there helpful interventions that can be done after you know someone's been through a stressful uh, situation? Oh no, there's certainly interventions that can be done and there's um, whether it's counseling or, you know, the biggest thing that we've tried to do is educate people first it's important to identify the situations that officers are in that that could lead to this, you know, this, those different stressful um, incidents or encounters, uh, and then do debriefs with the officers and just talk uh, very openly about what happened. Um, and we have a peer support group that that will then go out and talk to the officers and, and say, okay, we know that you went through this. Um, first, let's talk about what happened and just educate that that person on what to look for in themselves. So you said you have a peer support group. Does that mean that there are other officers who talk to your other Lakewood officers who talk to your officers? That's that's right. So okay. we have um, a peer support team here in Lakewood that's made up of officers. Uh, and it's exactly what it sounds like, peer support. Uh, it's not the command staff coming in and, and, you know, giving orders or anything else. It's this peer support group who uh, are allowed a certain level of privileged communication by RCW uh, to talk to the officers about what they're experiencing and just be um, provide a sort of a first line support uh, in the wake of some of these uh, critical incidents that they deal with. Okay. And is that sounds like it could be a very helpful program. Is that a model that uh, other uh, departments are using? Yes. I don't know how many, but I do know other departments are. You find, you'll find it more in larger departments because you have the personnel to, to do it. Um, but it can be done in smaller departments as well. It's just a matter of, you know, picking the right people and, and having them go through the right training to be designated peer support. Can you give at least a high-level description of some of the difficult situations your officers are walking into? Sure. Well, I can give you... Uh, one of my own examples from years ago when I was a detective and working on a, a what started out as a custodial interference case and of a nine-year-old daughter that was taken out of state by her mother and eventually murdered um, 
by her own mother. Uh, and then I had to go and um, notify uh, her dad, the other half of that, that his, his daughter was murdered. Um, those are tough, tough situations to deal with. Um, you know, we have uh, situations where, you know, last year, I think uh, it was that we had uh, a person shooting uh, in a, a residence in one na- neighborhood in our city. Um, one person was hit and our officers had to go in and get that person out, um, not knowing if gunshots were going to keep coming uh, and get that person to safety. Um, they ultimately saved that person's life, but that's a very high stress, life-threatening situation that they have to deal with and not just, you know, go through the stress of, of getting that person out or in, in the, the situation I dealt with, it's, you know, it's one thing to have to go in and, and make a death notification or do these things, but you still have a job to do. And so that's where, you know, you suppress some of those um, natural responses that you might have um, because you have work to do still. Uh, and that's where some of the trouble comes in is that you, you get good at suppressing and compartmentalizing until, you know, sometimes it, it, it just bubbles up and manifests itself in some, you know, negative behavior. behavior. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. That's a uh, helpful insight. I mean, I think most of us have jobs and, and lives where we don't face that kind of difficult, stressful situation, right? A hard mm-hmm. day at work. Um, for someone who works in an office is going to look pretty different from that. And, mm-hmm. um, and so are there, is there some kind of particular training um, or personality assessment that uh, officers get to, to be able to handle that kind of thing? Or I guess what I'm looking for is, or I almost assume that they're made of different stuff than mm-hmm. I am, right? That yeah. I and my friends are that, that aren't yeah. facing these kind of situations. Is there, is there something that enables them to face those difficult situations? That's a good question. I don't know that we are um, hiring people that are, you know, have an innate resilience to um, some of these stressful situations. Um, We certainly do a personality assessment and a psychological evaluation. Uh, I don't know how much of those um, detect this kind of resilience to this. Um, Personally, I kind of think we are all the same biological creatures. You know, some of us are wired a little bit differently, but uh, I think um, the people that we do hire um, come in with their eyes open um, and understand that that's what they're getting into. And um, it's not that um, they're better prepared or equipped to deal with it. It's just that they know they're going to have to. Right. And they're self-selecting, I suppose, by exactly. applying for this job. Exactly. You know, I think the the best thing that you can do is one, educate your, your personnel on uh, particularly your first line supervisors, because they're the ones that are going to recognize uh, when it, some kind of intervention might be necessary. Uh, but educating people on what sort of uh, symptoms, uh, post-traumatic stress or uh, post-traumatic stress disorder might present um, and be able to educate their own officers on that. Uh, the other part of that is uh, something that we've done is we've had a mental health professional that we've uh, contracted with to be available to officers. Now, it is important um, that if that's a, the route that you take, that you pick the right person for that and make sure that there is it's not just somebody that you have on paper with a, with a phone number to, to hand out when you think somebody needs it. 
whoever that person is has to develop a trust and a rapport with your department. Um, and for us, uh, she's come in and met with the officers, you know, gone to different turnouts. And so she's a, a known quantity and familiar with them um, because they're, there's a, a bit of a uh, innate distrust of strangers uh, with, you know, with people in general to, to open up and share stuff, but particularly with, with officers. So they're, they're going to be reluctant just to call uh, cold call some name and a, you know, and a number uh, that they're given on a piece of paper. They're much more apt to seek out uh, counseling and help from somebody that they know. Um, so that's one of the things we've done. And it's so far, I think it's been successful. I think people have taken um, advantage of that uh, resource. Um, Good. Now, can, can I ask, uh, you mentioned the, yeah. the peer group and then um, talking to therapists. On, on either of these, I can imagine at least one of the the challenges is that if you've dealt with a, a situation that's high stress, there's also maybe an increased likelihood that there's uh, there could be a legal question within that, the way you handled that, uh, mm -hmm. an officer handled a particular situation. Um, are, are those protected communications when they talk to a therapist or to that peer group? To the therapist, yes. Okay. And to the peer group, to a certain extent. And again, that's actually protected by RCW, by state law, um, that defines the peer supports um, confidentiality. So it's not automatically, uh, they can't be compelled uh, automatically to, to talk about that in court. Um, but that is a concern that a lot of officers will have. And that's why it's important to not just have, you know, that peer support component, but uh, also, um, you know, maybe some sort of outside clinical um, assistance. Okay. We've been talking about this issue, which is, I think, first and foremost, a really uh, sensitive human issue in the, the way that these difficult, um, these difficult situations can affect a human. I, I also want to talk though. this is the city voice podcast and we're, it's aimed at city leaders. Mm -hmm. So, um, Brian, I wonder if you could tell us some of the ways that PTSD affects the city as an organization and, and kind of what the process looks like for someone, uh, for an officer, a city employee who, uh, who's diagnosed with PTSD. I think just, Naturally, I'm going to gravitate towards the workers' comp end of it, and um, you know the, the the compensability and the time off work, and uh, of course monetary effects there. When PTSD became a law here in Washington as a um, allowed condition for presumptive um, coverage back in June of 2018, I believe. So, if I understand right, you're saying that in around the summer of 2018, PTSD became recognized as something for which people could take workers' compensation. Correct. Okay. Up until then, it was not a loud condition where an officer or first responder, firefighter even, could file a workers' compensation claim um, on its own as an occupational disease. I will say going back to and that's as a presumptive illness. Presumptive. Going back to the officer I mentioned in 2009 that took some time off, right. that actually was recognized by uh, L&I as a work-related illness. Mm -hmm. um, but we, that took some doing. That took a, a lot of convincing. And we had obviously had a very specific, very traumatic incident we could point to. And, and he was also specifically diagnosed with it. So... It could have been filed on an individual basis, but now um, with this, it became uh, the change in law became a presumptive illness, which means 
um, there's this presumption that in as a first responder, you are likely to have responded to some life-threatening situation or, or something that would or could lead to PTSD. I see. Um, so how does that affect, um, you know, we think of, of police and fire as uh, the employees are going to be kind of front lines and, and most likely to experience some of these. But what about if it's an, uh, you know, if it's an electrical worker working on energized equipment or even a parks worker who could potentially, um, you know, be in some difficult situation is, are they in a different position legally in their ability to claim PTSD? In that case, uh, that would be a specific incident in which, uh, you know, maybe they've witnessed a traumatic event, were injured as well themselves, and added on a condition of PTSD to their injury. So in other industries besides first responders, um, that has always been an acceptable condition uh, within workers' comp rules. Um, The new law now made it as an occupational over a period of time. This is developed in responding to many incidents over the period of their career. They could they could now file for the a workers' comp claim for PTSD. So, Brian, can you tell us what the experience is like for a city who has uh, an employee that's experienced PTSD? What what happens? And, you know, it's pretty early right now, but what we've seen is, you know, an officer may develop some symptoms. Um, has an awareness of the uh, condition, the worker's comp ability to file a claim, and then goes and sees his doctor or her doctor. And the doctor will say, you know, you have PTSD symptoms, um, and then you can get treatment through worker's comp on your medical. And if you have time off, that's also paid through the worker's comp um, insurance system as well. So they can get time off. Um, There's a period of treatment um, there's a lot of different treatments out there. Again, we're not medical uh, professionals here, um, so some work differently than others. And, you know, we're dealing with the human brain, so we don't know how long it's going to take or how long they'll be off um, or if they'll ever be able to return to work. Um, that's, and, and that's different than other situations where, you know, there could be, if there's a, a car accident or something like that, and you can pretty well assess the damage to a vehicle and, and know when it's going to get repaired and how much it's going to, how much money it's going to take to do that. But you're saying with the complexities of, of a human psychology, that's not always, it's, it's not always easy or even possible to know uh, what the cost and duration is going to be for, um, for getting back to health. That's exactly right. I mean, we're dealing with the human brain. We're dealing with um, life events um, officers have responded to over the years or um, just recently. Everybody's affected by an event differently. One officer might be affected by an event differently than his partner uh, or her partner. Well, so that brings up a question, and I don't, I don't know if um, either of you can speak confidently to this, but um, is it an entirely subjective question of whether or not someone has, uh, has experienced a traumatic event, what's traumatic for one person, and certainly some of the situations that Chief Zaro mentioned, I think are traumatic to a, to a normal person. But um, what if one thing that seems routine to someone else is uh, really, you know, to, the, to another person, it, it strikes them as traumatic. And they, um, is, there any, is there any way to question that in any way to say, was that really a traumatic event or was that just a difficulty? You just had a bad day, but it doesn't rise to the level of a traumatic event. Well, I, I don't think you would question the event. Um, because we're talking again, if we get to the point where somebody's filing a claim for PTSD, I would I would assume that they've been diagnosed. 
Okay. So you're not questioning the event, you'd be looking at the diagnosis. And in which case, which LNI does frequently, you know, they'll ask, they'll have you go get a second opinion. So that might be the case, but it wouldn't be that they're, they would look at what the doctor said and, you know, as far as a diagnosis and say, well, I know the doctor diagnosed you with this, but we don't think this, oh, sure. this event was traumatic enough to, to warrant that. So we're going to, we're going to discount what the doctor said. That's a very good point. So that's a very, very good point. So as city leaders, whether that's in the police department or elsewhere, we're not the ones asking this question. We're not the ones making the determination. Uh, right. Um, it's a doctor making that determination. Right. Which is why it's important to, to understand that, that it is a diagnosis. It's just like, you know, if somebody came to us and said, I, I've got cancer, mm-hmm. you know, and you'd say, okay, is that what the doctor told you? Well, no, I just, you know, I'm pretty sure I've got this mole that doesn't look right. And I've got, I'm sure it's cancer. You know, you, you, you want to rely on what a doctor said, not just some self-diagnosis. Um, conversely, if somebody came and said, look, the doctor told me I have cancer and I need chemo, um, we would say, okay, you know, that's, we will work with you on however we need to. And same thing with PTSD. Somebody comes and says, the doctor diagnosed me with, with PTSD. Um, then you trust that evaluation and go from there. I think that's encouraging in a lot of ways that it's a good reminder that, um, when it comes to these vagaries of human psychology that we we're not the ones that have to make that determination. Right. If it's uh, legitimate or not, there are uh, doctors who are able to, uh, to make that call, so that's helpful. Um, Chief Sar, as, as you've talked about the changing attitudes towards not just PTSD, but anything else that might be considered a weakness, um, you're encouraged by those changing attitudes. Do you, do you see any myths out there that, um, that you wish could be addressed still? Well, you know, Along the sort of same lines as the, as PTSD, or at least within the conversation, um, we should talk about suicides. Uh, and I and I say that because I think there's one of the myths is that you know if you have PTSD, um, you're either going to be you know become a liar or a murderer, or it's going to just you know you're you're um, forever broken, um, or it's going you're going to kill yourself you know or commit suicide. Um, we need to dispel that part uh, and say, you know, PTSD is treatable and it doesn't always lead to, um, you know, you being a liar or, you know, you committing these, you know, bad things, uh, nor does it uh, equate to suicide. And on our department, we've also dealt with that. We've dealt with the suicide of an officer. And um, one of the things that in the aftermath of that, uh, I, we saw is that there was this assumption that, well, he must have had PTSD. And we don't know that that's the case. There was certainly some, um, you know, might have been some indicators or might have been some some incidents that, that he dealt with that people could point to and say it's because of that or this, but we don't know for sure. Uh, and it, as we talk about suicide is maybe even its own separate topic. Uh, one of the things that for me that's important to emphasize is that there is no um, a plus B plus C equals suicide. You know, there, that, you know, as we talked about the, the complexities of the human brain, I don't think there is this mathematical formula where you can say, okay, this person has this malady and this malady, and therefore, you know, they, they're on the road to suicide. Um, so that is one of the myths that I think we need to get away from. Uh, I also think with mental health in general, we need to not be afraid of it. 
um, whether it is PTSD or, or somebody who's feeling suicidal or, or massively depressed, we need to be able to confront that openly uh, in order to get that person the right treatment. Um, and that, that just means talking about it. Um, and that's, I do think podcasts like this will help. Um, but just having that conversation, because again, as I, we talked about me going back to the beginning of my career, you would not have even hinted at having any sort of struggles at work. And I think we are to the point now where people do come forward and I've seen it and talked about how they're, how they're struggling. And it's important when somebody does come forward that we kind of embrace them. We thank them for coming forward uh, and make sure they know it's nothing to apologize for and just work with them to, to get better. That's very helpful. So perhaps one of those myths uh, could be that PTSD is a career ender or a life ender that it's, you know, to even think that you might um, be affected by PTSD is, you know, this, this really uh, diagnosis is more consequential than you're saying it is. There is thing, there are things we can do. It's not the end of the world. And if, um, if it's treated like it's the end of the world, then it's going to keep people from being willing to consider that they have it and get the, the treatment absolutely. and interventions that they need. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, it, it is not a career ender. It's not, you know, a, a, an automatic death sentence or a road to suicide or anything else. It's just, it's, it's a condition that needs to be treated and it is treatable. Um, but we have to, we have to accept that that's the case and, um, treat it like that's the case. Yeah. Chief Zaro, you, if I could go back to one of your points you made, uh, you were talking about early in your career, it was not something to talk about. And, and, you know, now we're at the point where it's a good awareness and it's an education when, the workers' comp law went into effect. Um, from a workers' comp standpoint, we automatically went into reactive mode and thinking all these claims are going to be filed. We're going to have these PTSD claims. Workers' comp, we react to the claim, we manage it, and we get to claim resolution. But what we found um, with the PTSD and the occupational disease law is that reactive, you're done as far as your best effectiveness is in the beginning and the early intervention. Um, there is treatment for PTSD and there is hope after, but as far as claim management, we looked at it as you need to have early intervention is much more important than the claim ever happening and, and getting to the awareness, the education and, and treatment early on before it becomes a diagnosis is the key. Oh, I agree with that completely, that um, early intervention and education is, is imperative. Um, but that's not to say that if it does reach to the point of exactly. a diagnosis of a disorder, that it's that you're done. Uh, you, you can still be treated uh, and still be a productive member of the department or, or, or your employer's uh, agency. Uh, but um, it, it is more important to get in on, you know, the sooner you get in, the, the sooner you can have a positive uh, intervention. You're right. Even in our program, as new as, as this law is, we've seen uh, workers comp claims, PTSD claims come in, um, treated, and they do go back to mm -hmm. their original job of injury. So um, actually in our experience so far, that's happened more often than the other, where they right. don't ever go back to their original job of injury. And I think you and I have had the conversation that uh, all the claims managers were bracing for this tidal wave of claims we uh, shortly after the law went into effect, but it didn't happen. Right. 
So that which I think is more indicative of the impression people have of PTSD and the prevalence of it than what's actually out there. Um, there's there is post traumatic stress, but for it to be diagnosed as a disorder, I think is more uncommon and rare. Interesting. Do, do either of you just happen to know if there's a um, sort of a, a most common um, type of event that leads to PTSD claims? I don't. Okay. No. Just the accident descriptions I've seen, um, they are a myriad of different events that officers have witnessed to, which kind of really points to uh, the subject matter of our first responders are responding to things that we could not even dream of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was, no, please go ahead. Well, and I was going to, you know, as we talk about what officers respond to, uh, one of the examples I always give is it's not just the the individual incident. It's the the change in from one incident to the next mm -hmm. and the, the drastic mind, shift in mindset that you have to have. And the example I give, and I because I heard this call, the, these two calls back to back on the radio a few years ago. But the first call was uh, officers responding to chickens loose in the road. Immediately after that, they had to go to a domestic with a knife. Now think about the the change in mindset you have to have going from one to the next. That's pretty drastic. So it's not just that, you know, the, the domestic with a knife. It's how you go from one to the next uh, and manage that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you think we, we aren't really equipped. Most people aren't really equipped to have that kind of whiplash of are there things you can do? And maybe maybe you've just gone through something. All you know is you've gone you've had a difficult day at work. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would, so if somebody came to me and, I, and they said, I have no read, I can't talk to anyone, all I can talk to is, to is you. You're not an expert, Brian, but I'm going to ask you. I would say, well, well, just do as many healthy things as you can. Right? Try to get plenty of sleep, mm -hmm. um, limit, you know, the things that are unhealthy, get, eat healthy food, get plenty of sleep, talk to your spouse, don't stay up till 2 p.m. watching or 2 a.m. watching murder shows on Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. so yeah. do, live in a healthy way. Um, is it, do you advise that kind of thing at all? Well, uh, first, it's uh, I'm going to I'm going to address like talking to your spouse and the, and or whoever your sig significant other right, is yeah. or your support yeah, good network. Point, good point. Um, we actually have a class coming up for spouses or, and significant others um, to educate them on what some of the impacts of this profession are, and that's one of the things I think that one of the areas where I think we've failed as a profession to recognize is the impact this this job has on our loved ones. Certainly after 2009, it's something I recognized right away is that we we all came together as a department and focused on each other. But meanwhile, our, our support network, our loved ones and our families were sitting at home wondering you know, where we were and if we were okay and dealing with grief in their own way. Um, it is important because that's who is going to have eyes on you when you go home and are away from uh, work and decompressing and maybe um, starting to show some of the, the impacts of the things that you've dealt with. It's important for that support network and the significant others to, to know what, what they're seeing uh, and to know what to look for and, and maybe how to cope with it themselves. And that is one of the things that we're working on here. And it's new. It's not like we're, uh, I, I don't pretend to say that we are you know, so much smarter than everybody else and other agencies might be doing this as well. But what's new for us is starting this class for significant others and support groups to come in and learn about the profession and understand what their loved one might be going through. Um, 
with if that's the case, then it is more uh, it is easier for an officer to go home and kind of share what what they dealt with and and for the loved one to be a little more sympathetic and understanding about what um, they're seeing. That sounds like a great program. That's, that sounds like a great idea. And are there any other? Um... I would think that's actually groundbreaking um, for the treatment or what we're talking about today in PTSD. Um, studies have shown, yes, talking with your spouse, significant other is the good outlet. We all do it. I mean, I look at my bad day and I go home and talk to my spouse and say, wow, I had a really bad day. I can't imagine an officer bad day and those details uh, maybe need to leave some details out, but still share, hey, I responded to a couple really bad, bad ones today. And I, I went from this easy one to a transition and it was just really tough want to talk with you about it, but not tell you all the details because you may develop some things just from hearing this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that type of training to the spouses, I think, could be even groundbreaking here in Washington. Do you think there's a sense that um, I need to protect my spouse or loved one from the, the awful things I see during the day? I'm not going to burden you with the things that are burdening me. I think absolutely. And sometimes you just don't know how to broach that conversation. You know, how do you how do you come home and even start that conversation about what what it is that you saw without feeling like you're unloading all these gross things on your on your significant other um, uh, to a sense? I think there is that, you know, protective piece of it where you just, you know, it, you're already dealing with it. Why, why involve somebody else? Cities now are becoming aware and through the education and even podcasts like these and um, conferences about PTSD and their police department for a city who's, you know, kind of just grabbing this and saying, okay, we need to do something now. What is some advice that you have for for cities to just start this process of, you know, bringing in a peer group, bringing in a doctor. Um, you know, some officers are, are a little bit reluctant to go on the EAP phone line. You know, what what is something a city who's like, all right, we're starting out on this and we need to do something in our city. What's some advice that you have for them? Well, start now. If you don't wait until somebody comes forward with, with some problems, start now um, in preparing, you know, just we do it with almost everything else. We prepare for what might happen uh, and we make sure that we're ready. Um, so do the same thing with, with any psychological ailments or whether it's PTSD or something else. Get your peer support group uh, in, uh, in place. You know, look at who you would bring in for uh, any sort of psychological evaluations or counseling assistance. Uh, talk to your supervisors. Um, just And a lot of it comes down to not being afraid to have an open discussion about a lot of this and educate yourself. Uh, like I said earlier, we brought in somebody from JBLM, a doctor, uh, to educate us as a department and our command staff about what PTSD is. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be afraid to do that. I mean, it's we it's not our profession. So educating yourself is, is first uh, and then putting into place the, the mechanisms and the, the support group networks for when something does happen.